Alright. Day 7. Rockford Reading Daily. We're reading Have Black Lives Ever Mattered by Mamiya Abu-Jamal. The arrest of Harvard scholar Dr. Oh, that's not where we at. My fault. We already read that. Okay. When a grand jury finds beatings to be, quote, helpful, end quote, August 13th, 2009. As the contretemps surrounding Dr. Henry Lewis Gates and the Cambridge Police Department falls out of the news cycle to become fodder for late night comedians, we learn, if anything, that even the president has limits when it comes to, quote, teachable moments, end quote. For, as any school teacher could have taught him, learning is a two-way street. When the student is close to the lesson, ain't nothing getting in. And America ain't trying to hear nothing about its racist present. Dr. Henry Louis Gates, a man possessed of a healthy sense of humor, has even joked about the incident publicly, and in my imagination, I can even hear his distinctive chortle as he answers the questions, quote, are you all right? End quote, with the quip, quote, yeah, I'm okay. The only thing hurting is my dignity, end quote. Precisely because of his renown and status, Dr. Gates, a prolific writer, acclaimed academic, and PBS broadcaster, was spared the violent indignity meted out against most blacks who roused the anger of white cops in this country. Most African Americans are not so privileged as shown by the beating administered to Nadra Foster, a KPFA radio producer who, in August 2008, was attacked, kicked in the head, and handcuffed by at least eight cops. Because Ms. Foster lacks the level of national prominence of Dr. Gates, Nadra's story did not make it to the evening news. Nor did the black presidential candidate at the time announce he was, quote, a friend, end quote, of this black mother, who worked for over a decade at the Pacifica station as a volunteer producer, nor that her beating, kicking, handcuffing, and arrest were handled, quote, stupidly, end quote, as, of course, they were. That's because, in America, what happened to Ms. Foster ain't anything new. Just recently, a Philadelphia grand jury, expertly led by a local district attorney, refused to indict half a dozen cops who brutally beat, kicked, bludgeoned, and stumped three young black men who were allegedly suspects in a local shooting. The three were later acquitted. The grand jury refused to return indictments despite videotapes from a hovering helicopter showing the men struck repeatedly by more than a dozen cops as they lay face down in the street. To add insult to injury, the grand jury report, scripted by prosecutors, insisted that the beatings were, quote, helpful, end quote, rather than, quote, harmful, end quote. I don't think the initial Rodney King grand jury, which clear members of the Los Angeles Police Department, even went that far. But news is quote, man bites dog, end quote, not the status quo, but the unusual. And black people, men, women, and children being beaten by cops isn't unusual, even if on tape. There'll be no frosty mugs of beer waiting on the White House patio for the three young men beaten and battered in the Philadelphia streets, nor will there be national coverage for a black mom brutalized by a platoon of police at a community radio station. The violence committed by police against such folks, it seems, doesn't offer, quote, teachable moments, end quote. Okay, uh, 
I'm working on the us. So the first thing I think about uh, reading through that is how how difficult it is after some of these incidents that I've been involved with. Uh, Denzel Duvant, for instance, it's a picture of Denzel Duvant that we keep uh, on the trash cans and that we keep near City Hall. And because of the the picture and the image of him being beaten and assaulted and brutalized so heavily and you can see uh, his eyes swollen, you can see blood coming from his lips. Uh, people stop and they ask questions about it. it, it, it people become intrigued by the, this visual aspect of seeing this thing from Denzel Duvant as opposed to uh, uh, if we were to put a picture up of somebody who was shot by the police department and it was just a picture of their face and people wouldn't be as likely to, to stop and to ask questions. And uh, for me, it's the it's the differences that all of these uh, events have with each other and how very specific things make something more uh, a bigger story, make something more of a national story or make something a bigger story locally. Uh, we, we watched this. When we first came out here, Tyrus Jones was shot while he was running away by the Rockford Police Department. And because so many things had just happened with George Floyd being murdered months earlier because of the protests that had been going on around City Market, there was more of an, uh, there was more uh, press surrounding Tyrus Jones being shot. There uh, was more of a, a push uh, for something that happened about Tyrus Jones being shot, as opposed to when Denzel Duvant was assaulted in January 5th, even though more people stop and ask questions about his pictures because of how his image looks, you know, uh, there wasn't an outpour, outcry from the community or for or news stations, or there was not a, a, a lawyer that came in to try to assist the, the family of Denzel Duvant with what was going on. Uh, there wasn't people out protesting or marching for Denzel Duvant. And uh, then... Uh, Months later, uh, Jose Gonzalez Jr. would be shot and Fausto Guaitigo would be murdered. And when we would put events together to, to march and rally, there would be about like, 50 people max that came out for uh, both of those events, even though across uh, the state or in a, across the, the region in a different state, uh, there were thousands of people coming out in uh, Brooklyn Center after... Uh, Dante Wright had been murdered by uh, a, a police officer in, in Brooklyn Center. And you could see that the, the, the pressure and the national coverage and the, the, the outpour and the outcries would force the city to do something differently than they had done in years past and to uh, get rid of this police officer or to uh, uh, press bring charges up on this police officer. Uh, and it was disheartening to look at the family of Fausto Guaitigo or to look at the mother of Jose Gonzalez Jr. and to know that the same incident had just took place with their child and nothing like that would happen. That uh, this would be something that would barely be a blip on the radar because it wasn't national coverage, because it wasn't uh, something distinct about what happened to them that would make it uh, more likely to be a news story or that people would be more intrigued about. And that's been one of the things that, you know, we've seen happen out here constantly. Uh, it was a video of us being shot at outside the Winnebago County Justice Center. And more people have seen that video and have talked about that video and asked me about that video uh, than have asked me about Faustin Guaitigo, who is has a video of him being murdered uh, that circulated online, that circulated uh, on news stations. And it's because of the prominence or some of the, and I don't know if prominence is the right word to use, but it's because of uh, the image or the uh, uh, some of the 
the notability that we have had uh, because of uh, being lo known people locally or because the organization is known locally. And uh, and so that's what led to uh, more of a, a outcry about it or more of empathy, people feeling empathetic about it, as opposed to Faustin Guaitigo, who was not somebody who was known uh, by a, 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 a a bigger section of the community before him being murdered, who was somebody who wasn't in the public eye. I guess that's what I'm looking for. And so you see here with Henry Louis Gates Jr., or we've seen with the passage before where Henry Louis Gates Jr. was somebody who uh, was in the public eye and somebody who had a notability in the community. And so when something happened to him, there was sort of a, 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 pavement, a platform for people to be more upset and for people to care more about it. And as opposed to this... Uh, these children who were, or these teenagers who would be assaulted or uh, this woman who would be assaulted and there would be no outpour outcry for them and it would be uh, Obama wouldn't speak about them and Obama wouldn't invite them to the White House and and you know, I think I sort of took the the long long road to get to that point but trying to get back in the groove trying to trying to get in the groove all right let's keep going when racists rule policy September 13th 2009 Imagine being Van Jones, a young black man from a poor family, a graduate of one of the best law schools in America, Yale, who uses his gifts and energies not to make a buck for some soulless hedge fund, but to make a difference in his neighborhood of Oakland, California, by organizing the community around creating better jobs, stabilizing the environment, increasing clean energy, halting police violence, and improving education. Imagine what such a man must have felt to see an unprecedented presidential campaign by another young black man who, from modest economic means, also graduates one of the best law schools in America, Harvard, and spurns lucrative offers from rich law firms to become a low-paid community organizer on Chicago's west side, the city's poorest and blackest neighborhood. Van Jones must have felt that Barack Obama was a man after his own heart, a man who came from the poor and returned to the poor, to serve and organize amongst them. He must have also thought that this was the coming of a new age, a new era of profound social change in America. So Van Jones takes a post as the Obama administration's green energy czar, a field he's passionate about. His mission will be to provide green jobs in black communities and to conserve national resources as part of a larger shift away from America's addiction to oil. But almost immediately, Jones comes under attack from forces in America that really don't want change. Egged on by, quote, conservative, end quote, shout show host, Jones was being labeled, quote, racist, end quote, and that old Cold War charge should have died with the fall of the Soviet Union, quote, communist, end quote. Such neoconservative tantrums should have had little impact on a president who has been called, quote, racist, end quote, and, quote, socialist, end quote, by the same people. These are the ideological descendants of those who spat on black children trying to go to schools during desegregation, people who called Martin Luther King Jr. a, quote, communist, end quote, so loudly that he was under FBI surveillance to the day he died. For these Americans, change means fear. In their dark imaginations, the only people who want change are communists. It shouldn't have had an effect, but it did. Van Jones resigned to protect the black president who wouldn't protect him. It, remained, it reminded me of Lanny Gounier, another brilliant Yale-trained black lawyer 
who got left hanging when racists dubbed her a, quote, quota queen, end quote, when she was nominated for a post in the Clinton administration's Justice Department. If racists can ostensibly lose an election and still dictate policy, then have they really lost? It seems to me that the loudest voices screaming, quote, racist, end quote, are the most racist, who stands for a status quo that only serves themselves. Okay, that's the end of that passage. That was my first time hearing about that specific event, so I don't know if I have any type of deep dissection or deep dive into that. So I think I'm just going to keep moving on to this next passage, which is the death penalty derives from Lynch law, March 10th, 2010. The anti-death penalty movement is an offshoot of the international human rights movement that was originally advanced by nonprofit organizations and grassroots groups and later by a variety of sovereign governments. It is noteworthy then for us to cite the successful abolition of the death penalty in Kenya in 2009. We should also note the fact that the rate of American juries meeting out death sentences has fallen to its lowest level in 30 years. And finally, several months ago, the group that was perhaps most instrumental in fashioning the death penalty in the United States, the American Law Institute, announced it would no longer participate in formulating laws governing use of homicide for purposes of punishment. The Institute, a distinguished group of 4,000 judges, law professors, and lawyers, was the group that initially proposed the, the aggravating and mitigating circumstances that the U.S. Supreme Court adopted in 1976 when it reinstated the death penalty. And yet, despite this, the death penalty is alive and well in the United States. Why? It makes no sense ethically or economically, but most politicians seem to be wedded to it. That's because at its core, the death penalty derives from, and thus replaces, lynch law. It is mere coincidence that the states that execute people most frequently are the southern ones? Is it mere coincidence that the states that execute people most frequently are the southern ones? This is also generally true when we examine the establishment and expansion of the American prison system. After the Civil War, when law forbade whites to continue to enslave blacks, States in the former Confederacy established the convict leasing system by which states leased out the labor of prisoners to private parties. In his superb book, Slavery by Another Name, The Reenslavement of Black Americans from the Civil War to World War II, Douglas A. Blackman writes that during this period, quote, whites realized that the combination of trumped up legal charges and forced labor as punishment created both a desirable business proposition and an incredibly effective tool for intimidating, rake and foul, emancipated African-Americans and doing away with their most effective leaders, end quote. Instead of being a financial burden, instead of being a financial burden, leasing incarcerated blacks to businesses was a way local governments actually turned a profit. In essence, these states made a private institution a public one, and both black men and women became, quote, slaves of the state, end quote. The U.S. death penalty system performs a similar function. It has socialized or made public that which had been heretofore the province of individuals, lynchings. Uh, okay, and so in that passage, this is the first time that we begin to speak about the death penalty and the racist ties that the racist roots that the death penalty has. And I think that 
the death penalty is something that is, again, each one of these macroaggressions that are being spoken about in, in this book are fall under police terrorism, mass incarceration, or racial injustice, in my opinion. And now, each one, because each one of these things are interlocked and intertwined with each other, you sort of, you can't get to one without the other happening in some type of a way. But I think that specific ones go more towards painting the, the negatives of certain one of these institutions that we're dealing with. And so this, the death penalty, it to me goes towards the issue of mass incarceration. And uh, somebody told me when I first began to uh, become informed about these things and uh, read literature about these things and become involved in this movement, somebody told me that at each level that you get deeper into the criminal justice system, it becomes uh, more and more racist or the racism becomes more and more evident. And so it, at the first level of police terrorism or at the first level of being arrested by police or assaulted by police, all of these things that happen directly with police officers, it is inherent racism and bias and prejudice that goes into those things. But it bleeds out to more people and it's a wider spread type of bias and prejudice and then and it's the race part of it is disproportionately there as well but as you get deeper into it so like once you actually get arrested and you go to court for the first time the amount of people who have their charges dismissed that are uh, white or as opposed to the people who have their charges held on to them that are of color is going to be disproportionate the the deal that is made with the prosecutor is going to lean to be more positive towards people who are white the the implications that needing to have funds to even be able to afford a lawyer is going to become skewed based off the fact that the medium income for a white family is higher than what it is for a black family or a white individual is higher than what it is for a black individual. And then once you get to a place of being having a jury or a, a, a bench trial, you're more likely to have a jury that's going to be white or a judge that's going to be white. And so then even you can sort of see how the picture becomes painted where then once you get sentenced, the sentencing for white people and then people of color is going to lean to be heavier on people of color. Then once you get into being going through the sentence and uh, the death. And so I'm saying all these things to say that once you get to the death penalty and people who have been charged with a, a crime that they consider to be a capital punishment, it is humongously disproportionately people of black people specifically and people of color who are even charged in with and uh, have the death penalty attached to uh, to what their verdict was, their sentencing was. And a book that is very informative about that is. Brian Stevenson's, I think Brian Stevenson's, Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy. The name of the book is Just Mercy. I can't remember if Brian Stevenson is the name of the author or not. But that is a book that's very informative about that part of mass incarceration. And so those were some of the things that I, I thought of while reading through this. All right, let's turn the page, go to the next passage. Life in dark flesh is not equal to life in white flesh. July 10th, 2010. The manslaughter verdict returned against former Bay Area rapid transit cop Johannes Mahezerel 
for the videotaped murder of Oscar Grant sent hundreds of protesters back into the hot streets of Oakland, California, Grant's hometown. The corporate media scratched their collective head, essentially asking, quote, why protest when the guy was convicted, end quote. The protesters know, however, that the court system bent heaven and earth to return the lightest verdict possible and voluntary manslaughter, and that Mahezeril likely faces probation instead of four years in prison, the maximum he could possibly receive. After all is said and done, Mahezeril may end up doing less time than rapper Lil Wayne did for only possessing a gun rather than lethally using one. Protesters know that Mahezeril got a non-black jury hundreds of miles away from Oakland. They know that any of them could have been Oscar Grant, unarmed, shot to death on tape, and the same thing would have happened. Of course, the corporate media don't get it. If Oscar Grant were the aggressor and charged with the killing, would he have been able to freely leave the state the way Officer Mahezeril fled to Nevada days after killing Mr. Grant? Would he have been able to transfer his trial hundreds of miles away? Would he have been able to select an all-black jury or one from which all whites were purged? If the killing were videotaped, would he too have been convicted of the lesser crime of involuntary manslaughter? Everyone who honestly considers these questions knows the answers. What does this say about the health of our society and our justice system? It says, quite loudly, that there's one law for some, another law for others. It says that life in dark flesh is not equal to life in white flesh. And those who take to the streets of Oakland and other cities across the nation know this in their hearts, minds, and blood. And then we're, we're seeing as the passage of time is going on, different verdicts coming out from cases that Mami Abu-Jamal told us about earlier in the in the book i think that that's another one of the things that we have to understand that in all of these different steps when you're dealing with these issues these macroaggressions of police terrorism mass incarceration and racial injustice there are there's levels to getting to a place of actually absolving ourselves of these issues and we live in a city where there hasn't even been an officer that has been terminated and it, the termination has been because of the murdering or the assault or the shooting of civilians in this city while on the job as being an officer. Instead, they've been covered and protected by being on the job and by being officers. And so when you look around the landscape, we see where in other areas, the issue has been pressed to such a point where there have been officers who have been offered up as scapegoats, but you have levels of the scapegoat being offered up. You have the layer when the officer is removed from being a police officer and is fired. Uh, once you can put something and exert leverage past that point, then you get to a place where, and you know, you have to understand the union, the police union has power in all of these things as well. Multiple different institutions have power in even getting you to a point of an officer being offered up as a scapegoat. But after a firing of an officer, the next step would be charges being brought up on an officer. Then the next step would be the officer actually going through a full trial. And then the next step would be the officer actually having the same, receiving the same type of justice and then I use this word justice reluctantly because it's, it's much more that goes into justice than just uh, sentencing somebody to prison. Uh, and I don't that, think that that truthfully is justice. But based on what we are dealing with, where we are at reality right now, we're just going to talk about it in, in this type of a manner. So then they have to be found 
guilty and then sentenced the way a civilian would be sentenced. Then they have to do out the time of that sentencing. Uh, and that's sort of the full spectrum of an, an isolated portion of this a macroaggression of a police killing. And so when you don't see all of those roadblocks hit, when you don't see all of those things hit, it lets you know that you still have further to go to and further to push to to get to a place where you can begin to absolve these issues and start to get to, to justice in some type of a way, which justice has to mean that the, whatever is manifesting and, and causing the causing these these for this specific thing that we're talking about causing these macroaggressions of police terrorism mass incarceration and racial injustice which is murdering and the killing of people while in custody or in officer involved shootings or in high speed chases not only just not only just dealing with the person who has done this isolated one, but getting to a point where there are no more individuals doing these things, where this institution does not perpetuate this thing anymore. Uh, that is that is justice. That's getting to justice. And so that has to be factored into what it is that we're speaking about. This been a, I don't know if I've been getting these points out. The, how I want to. This might be a, it's a rough one. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. Okay. And it's starting to get a little chilly. I'm going to have to get some bigger gloves. Let's knock out one more passage, though. Let's knock out one more. Geronimo, June 4th, 2011. On Thursday, June 2nd, 2011, came word that former Black Panther leader Geronimo Gijaga, nay, uh, excuse me, let me read this one more time. On Thursday, June 2nd, 2011, came word that former Black Panther leader Geronimo Gijaga, nay Elmer G. Pratt, died in exile in Tanzania. Geronimo's life was one of intense and almost total warfare, from battles in his youth as a soldier for the U.S. Empire in the streaming jungles of Vietnam, in the steaming jungles of Vietnam, to his membership and leadership of the L.A. chapter of the Black Panther Party, where he fought for his people. The FBI-inspired killing of L.A. Black Panther leader Al Prentice, quote, Bunchy, end quote, Carter, led to Geronimo's rise as the chapter's deputy minister of defense. And during a police raid on the Central Avenue office on December 8, 1969, Geronimo so prepared the site that it withstood over six hours of a police paramilitary assault with automatic weapons and grenades. Geronimo's prominence and shine in the shadows of Hollywood so disturbed the state local and federal governments that they framed him for a murder that it was impossible for him to have committed and sent him to prison for 27 years. When Geronimo was freed, it was because of an insistent national movement and because federal government files revealed he was nearly 300 miles away when the murder took place and because the state's chief witness was not only an LAPD undercover agent, but it snits for the L.A. District Attorney's Office as well as the L.A. Sheriff's De Department, an agency that formed formerly employed him. Upon his liberation, Geronimo toured the country to thank his supporters, then left the land of his birth to join a small exp expatriate community near Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Like several other ex-Panthers, he could never again trust his life nor his freedom to the U.S. government. And though he spent the balance of his years under a brilliant African sun, one suspects he longed for the rhythms of his native Louisiana, which remained in his speech and in its accents. It was in Louisiana, after all, that he learned about black armed self-defense, for this was fertile ground for the deacons of defense, 
an armed organization resisted and forcefully countered Ku Klux Klan terrorism in the region. That resisted and forcefully countered Ku Klux Klan terrorism in the region. Geronimo G. Jaga, a warrior for his people, has returned to his ancestors. And the history of what I would, they say that the civil rights movement was from 1954 to 1968. That's when a lot of people dated. And I think that from 1968 to, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what the year would be. You'd have to look back to find some more, but the, what seems to be like was the black power, black power time, black, black liberation. I think people, people have different names for it, but the black Panthers were sort of at the forefront. One of the, one of the organizations at the forefront of this time period. And a lot of those leaders uh, were in prison. This is when the beginning of mass incarceration in, in some sort of forms were beginning to happen. And uh, Geronimo was one of the uh, victims of those things. Again, the, the fact that he was framed for a crime that the FBI had evidence that he did not commit, had evidence that he was 300 miles away and did not commit. And the FBI allowed him to still be framed for this, allowed him to still uh, go to prison, spent 27 years in prison for this. And then when you think about that, uh, and we think about passages that we read earlier, where in those passages, one of the things that Mami Abu-Jamal spoke about is how organizations or even individuals have went to the FBI hoping that the FBI could help them deal with some of these issues of police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice that have manifested in their communities. Uh, but the problem with going to the FBI for some of these things is that the FBI has a long history of being complicit in these things, of enabling these things and allowing these things to happen, of empowering the agencies that do these things. And so it puts you in a, a place of uh, a catch-22 a lot of times when you, until we can build new institutions or maybe it's not new institutions, I don't know if that's the right word, but until we can build new outlets for, for us to receive justice. While Ray, oh, let's end this. I'm gonna end this one. I was gonna keep going again, but let's let's end this one. <laughs> uh, all right, we outside. Rafa reading daily. Share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. We got to that. We got it to 30 minutes, which is the time we've been trying to hit. But I think it was a might have been a rough a rough outing though. Uh, all right, we outside.